So, Patrick, good morning. Good morning, Roger. I uh, was wondering this morning, if you were to look back at your life and try to figure out what is the most exciting, yet the most terrifying type of day in your life, how would you characterize that? That would, without a doubt, be the birth of my four children. A very exciting event, but uh, as you say, terrifying at the same time, knowing the types of things that can go wrong. Um, especially if people aren't being attentive with the knowledge that I have and, and spending probably as much time trying to uh, comfort my wife as I am watching certain things on the monitors with my knowledge to make sure things aren't going wrong that nurses or doctors are not picking up on. I, um, I'm amazed I, I mean, at 2020 how many little ones are still ending up catastrophically injured at birth and sometimes even dying at birth. You would think that with science the way it is now, as long as you've got doctors that care and attend and are attentive and are listening, that we just wouldn't see this. But we're, we see it over and over and over again. With all the progress in medicine that's being made, you would think that the uh, catastrophic birth injuries would not be as common today as they were 30, 40, 50 years ago. So our topic today, obviously, is birth injuries, baby deaths, and we sort of have looked at this dividing it into a couple areas so that we can kind of streamline our discussion. We're going to talk about delays in delivering a baby that ended up with a baby being hurt. We're going, to end, we're going to talk about traumas at delivery, and we're going to talk a little bit about good questions that expectant parents or parents that have just been through uh, sort of a nightmare occurring to them with their baby that they ought to be asking. So let, let's let's start with uh, the, the notion of of um, a, a baby that is getting ready to come, a mom who is in the in the middle of that process of trying to survive the pain of labor, while the joy of what's going to happen next is right around the corner, and how it is that a baby can can call out for help during that process. What can what can you tell folks about that? First, let's back up. And you mentioned an interesting category as a mother that's in the throes of labor and then the baby that's being about to be born or in the process of being born. And we have to recognize that during any delivery, there are always two patients. There is the mother and then there is the baby. Uh, whether it be a first time mother who might not have been through the experience before, doesn't know truly what to expect, what is normal and what is concerning. Or if it's an experienced mother who has been put on pain medication where they're a little loopy or they're just not feeling what should be normal and what should be abnormal. And that's why we have things to allow the baby to communicate through its body and send signals to the healthcare providers that, hey, I'm either doing fine or there is something wrong here and we need to act now or we need to monitor closely because if we don't watch this closely, it is going to progress and it's going to worsen. One of those things that has been around for many, many years is called the fetal monitor strip or fetal heart tracings. Now those are, I'm not going to go into all the technical terms of it, but basically these devices they put on the mother and they can insert into the um, uh, baby's scalp where they can monitor the baby's heart rate to determine in relation to contractions, is that baby responding well to the labor process or is that baby not responding well, not getting enough oxygen? Is its heart beating too fast? 
that is one of the main signals or the main tools that healthcare providers have to monitor the health of the baby during the labor and delivery process. What's cool is a parent can actually see this monitor and see the heart rate as it's occurring. And for parents that are interested in researching what they're looking at or have good relationships with their doctors or nurse practitioners or midwives about what is it that I'm going to see, you can almost self-educate a little bit so that you can know what the right questions are to ask or how to talk to the baby during that laboring process. So, so I, you and I both know about moms that are maybe brand new moms for the first time and, and they and they get worried as they're going through that laboring process. And the question is, how, how is my baby? Can you tell me how my baby's doing? Well, the fetal heart monitor is a way that a healthcare provider paying attention, a parent that's done some research can tell that because they have these little squiggly lines across of them. Without getting too detailed, how would you describe what you're seeing on these squiggly lines as they're going across? Certainly. First of all, you can do a Google search and type in fetal heart tracings or fetal monitor strips. There are some educational courses that are presented in a way that lay people can understand them and look for about two or three main things. So what you're having on the fetal monitor strip, to answer your question, is you have a strip that monitors the uh, uterine contractions of the mother. That's the bottom strip. That's the bottom strip. At the same time, you have a monitor that, or a strip that goes right above uh, the uterine contractions, which is the baby's heart rate. And you see how they work in conjunction. As the mother's uterine contracts, the baby's heart rate should respond in a certain way. Uh, it will typically dip or the baby's heart rate will decrease during a contraction. That is because pressure is being put on the uh, placenta and the placenta is that organ that provides uh, life providing blood and also furnishes the baby with oxygen. During a contraction it is going to dip and then it should recover as the contraction ends. And if a contraction is too long or if they're coming too frequent in time, something called hyperstimulation, which we might talk about later, the baby's heart rate can dip for too long or it can dip too often. And when that happens, the baby's not receiving the blood that it should be getting, and it's not receiving the oxygen that it should be getting. And that is a situation where babies can become compromised, specifically can become brain injured, it's not getting enough oxygen. If you kind of think of it by way of an analogy, um, if you jump into a swimming pool and you go down to the drain and then you pop up and take a breath and go down to the drain again, pop up, take a breath, go down, you're going to be able to do that several times. But each time you go down, you are going to have less and less reserves of oxygen. And at some point, your body is not going to be able to maintain that and you're going to drown. That's kind of an analogy when you're talking about the uterine contracting and causing the baby to... Um, have a decrease in their heart rate because the every time that the uterine stops contracting that placenta kind of rejuvenates and renourishes itself to provide uh, that oxygen and blood to the baby maybe a longer explanation than you want it but that's what's going on with these two tracings and there are signs that you can look for again that you can get educated on uh, just by a simple google search that you can alert the nurses or alert the doctor if the doctor is there at the time hey does this look right does this look normal really simplifying it and that's a great explanation but really simplifying it when they see what looks like a v going down on that top strip that's 
what we know of as a deceleration of the heart rate. That heart rate is going down below the normal limits that exist. And the more of those that occur and the deeper and longer they occur, the more worried as a parent I would be. And the more I would be saying, what's happening with my baby? Is there something happening that ought to cause us to take a different approach to what we're doing here? That's exactly right. Is the V and what time is that V occurring? And when the contraction is over, is the baby's heart rate, because you will see the monitor strip, that squiggly line, will show the baby's baseline heart rate. And if that heart rate is changing, uh, whether it's going up over time and staying at a new baseline or going down over time, you have a new baseline, that could be something that's concerning that you need to watch out for. So watching those squiggly lines and just getting a basic education about what they mean uh, could be very important for the health of your baby. One other thing, as we're talking about fetal heart monitor strips, that line that shows the baby's heart rate, the top section, if that line begins to be more flatlined across a period of time, that means something. It means that there is a lack of oxygen that's likely getting to the baby, and, and it means that somebody needs to ask for help if they're not getting help immediately when that occurs. Folks looking at that, strip might think, well, that seems weird that, that that heart rate is bumping up ever so often here, but that's actually a good thing when it's bumping up a certain beats per minute. What is more worrisome is when that bumping up that occurs stops occurring or gets more flat over time. It's what, it's what uh, the fancy medical term is called variability. And if there's absence of variability, that's a problem and it can lead to the need for an emergency C-section. That, that's exactly right. And it's something that, uh, again, you can become educated on, on, on anywhere from three to five basic signs to watch out for. But you also have to understand as a parent and the importance of being educated is this is something the nurses should be paying attention to. However, nurses are oftentimes caring for multiple patients. Oftentimes nurses aren't educated in the fetal heart strip as much as they should be. And oftentimes they have nurses that have had to fill in because there is a shortage of staff. They've been pulled from another department or there is something called an education nurse who usually doesn't deal with the patients. I actually had a case where uh, there was a nurse who was responsible for monitoring the baby and mom. And there was something called the hyperstimulation occurring that I referred to earlier, where the uterus is contracting either for too long a period or too frequent. And I asked the nurse, well, what are the harmful effects of hyperstimulation to the baby? And she looked at me and she said, I don't know. And that baby was born with a, a severe brain injury. And that was a situation where the nurse just didn't have the education base to know that the baby was trying to tell her, I am in distress. I am not tolerating this uh, labor well and something needs to be done. And because of that knowledge deficit, the lack of education, nothing was done. And unfortunately that baby was born brain injured. So, so the thought about what can be happening in that environment that the baby's in, you know, uh, the, the uterus in the human body, as the baby gets larger and bigger through the gestational process is really quite amazing how this all works to keep the baby protected and safe while they're in this little cocoon, so to speak. But as mom goes into labor and the laboring process begins to take place, there can be many different reasons why 
there becomes an insufficiency of oxygen to the baby. It can be because the cord gets compressed while in the uterus. It can be because the head gets compressed by something occurring because that uterus has become a tighter space. It can be because as the gestational process goes on, the, the placenta has begun to separate from the lining of the uterus. And all of these things, any one of these things can cause a, an insufficiency of oxygen to the baby's brain and body. Um, Nowadays, again, this is kind of begs the question of why there's still so many of these injuries. Nowadays, they have alarms that will go off in the nurse's station when it happens, even if the nurse isn't in the room. But, but sometimes, and this is, this is an oddity to me, sometimes the patient is wondering, where's my doctor with all this? And the doctor doesn't show until the time the baby's ready to be caught at the very end. That's how medicine seems to have evolved nowadays with many doctors is I'll show up at the very end to catch regardless of whether there's things going along that I ought to be looking at and saying, this may not be right and I may need to, to take an alternative approach to getting the baby out. That's right. You know, a lot of women go into labor in the middle of the night or early mornings when the doctor maybe just doesn't want to get out of bed. They're relying upon these nurses to take care of that. But again, the nurses don't have the education. And when the, nur when the doctor comes in uh, and maybe takes a look at that fetal heart strip and sees what has been going on, becomes concerned and worried, all of a sudden uh, that labor, that birth, rather than becoming a delivery, becomes a rescue situation. And that's not a situation you want to be in. There needs to be educated people there the whole time, or at least reporting to the doctor the whole time. And you know, uh, nowadays with modern medicine and computers, we, the doctor oftentimes has the ability to actually view the fetal heart strip on their computer at home. Uh, they have to actually get out of bed and go down and turn it on and do that. But that is something uh, that they should be doing. But uh, your concern is, is well taken and one that I've experienced probably in two, if not three of my children's deliveries is where the doctor shows up at the last minute, basically to catch the baby and, and that's it. Which is all fine if everything's going swimmingly well across the course of the labor, I suppose. But, but if the alarms are going off and if the nurses are not responding or they are responding and they're, and they're not really sure what's happening with repositioning the patient or with doing things that nurses can do without a doctor there, then the call needs to be made to the doctor. And as a parent, uh, we would want to be assertive with that. Please call my doctor. Please make sure that, that my baby's safe. And, and, you know, we had this case that we had, we took to jury trial a few years ago where there were calls being made by the nurse to the doctor in the middle of the night and the doctor chose not to get up out of bed and look at the fetal heart monitor and the baby died about six hours after he was born. So, so th these, are, these are not only life-changing things, but life-threatening things at times that the healthcare profession is having to confront. So I want to swing back to the comment you made and, and let you uh, discuss this a little bit more. The notion of, of prevention rather than rescue whenever you're in a, a situation where the baby is crying out for help through the communication of the fetal heart monitor. How, why is it so important that we have a prevention instead of rescue policy in healthcare? Well, for, for exactly the reason why we have those cases that you discussed is because the longer you allow an unhealthy, unsafe um, labor to progress, 
you are depriving the baby of blood or oxygen or there are some other means that can cause the baby to be brain damaged. And that is going to be a, oftentimes, more often than not, a permanent injury to the baby that's going to affect them the rest of their lives. These injuries are lifelong, they are all-consuming, and they are devastating, not just for the baby, but for the parents, for the siblings, for the grandparents. When you have a brain-injured child, everybody has to kick in and it disrupts your life for the, for the rest of your life. So if you can prevent that situation from happening early by intervening, and there are many ways to intervene, many possibilities. You mentioned as simple as repositioning the mother, closer monitoring uh, to the extreme of, well, let's deliver this baby by C-section. But that is why we want to act and intervene at the earliest opportunity and the best opportunity to prevent uh, a situation where you have a, a, a baby that's permanently injured. So the notion of a C-section, you know, some young moms might be thinking, that's really scary. Somebody's going to cut on my body and it's going to leave a scar and I have risks associated with it. But when you weigh the option, which moms and dads have the right to be able to weigh, of do I potentially have a child that's going to have cerebral palsy occur because of damage to the brain. Damage is not going to regenerate. Damage is not going to get better. Damage that's going to affect function in every possible way at times. That option versus having a C-section occur before an emergency happens, before you have to, to immediately go cut, that's a choice that a parent ought to be able to be informed about, discuss with their doctor, discuss with their nurse, and make, rather than it being made for them. Don't you think? Absolutely. What happens to the woman's body is her choice that she needs to be informed about to make good choices. And just as important, if not more important, what happens to the baby and the risks that are willing to be exposed to that baby is a choice that the parents should be educated about and given the choice. And I am willing to bet dollars for donuts that any mother, any parent is going to choose the safety of their baby over a scar or a relatively common operation called a C-section that's done today. Uh, they want to preserve the health of their baby rather than say, oh, I'm worried about a scar. You and I have been working together, I think, 27 years with a little brief interruption at one point. And and we have seen how these cases have been defended. Legitimate cases where there's a catastrophic wrong done. What we've seen that the doctor's organization has done to try to defend these cases over time and how that's changed. So when you and I first started doing this, what healthcare was trained to do when they looked at the fetal heart monitor, when they were trying to figure out what was happening, what the baby was saying to them, is they would look at it as to whether the baby was in distress or not. Well, there were too many times that they didn't like that language getting in front of a jury, that the baby's in distress and nobody's doing things. So then they change it to, well, does a fetal heart monitor show that there's reassuring signs versus non-reassuring signs? And they didn't like that either because juries were hearing, well, what? you didn't do anything when there were non-reassuring signs in the monitor? So this organization that, that obstetricians belong to decided they were going to create new words and they were going to call them categories. It's almost like we're going to make babies numbers. We're going to create categories so that we can say this is a category one tracing or a category two tracing or category three rather than this 
tracing showing the baby crying out for help because he or she's in distress. And at the same time, making it more confusing for jurors to understand. Jurors can latch on and certainly understand uh, words such as distress uh, or tolerating well or reassuring versus non-reassuring. But when you start labeling it as categories and putting definitions, uh, it just confuses it for the jury, which is what these organizations want to do because these organizations are paid by doctors to be members and they want to protect those doctors. That's their primary job. Yes. And, and, and so as parents, when we're looking at what's happening, obviously we want things to be done when there's opportunity to do it rather than having to look back later and say, okay, I need to go see Patrick Martucci about whether I got a lawsuit. Any parent wants not to have to come see you about a lawsuit. Any parent wants to say, I want to take care of this before a tragedy occurs, right? That's right. And bring me your healthy baby to play with rather than your injured baby anytime. I'd much rather see that even as a lawyer. So, but what's still bewildering to me in places around Southwest Missouri that, again, you and I see some terrific doctors out there. So this isn't across the board, but you see a situation like a doctor realizing I need to do a C-section because the baby is in trouble, and yet it takes two hours to get the C-section done. You know, when the general rule is 30 minutes from decision to incision as the standard of care, and yet even with that type of care, they try to explain it away, well, you know, just a judgment call about how long it's going to take. That, that, that's true. Um, and I do believe in some instances there may be a, a difference between uh, the rate they're compensated for, or whether they do the C-section versus somebody else's C-section. I'm not trying to say it's just a monetary or numbers game, but I do believe there is input in that. But again, it's maybe they're ignoring the signs or just hoping things will get better on their own without intervention. But when you're talking about a baby and what can go wrong, you need to intervene um, with the parents being informed and with their consent at the earliest opportunity rather than wait to the chance or wait on the chance or when it does become a rescue. So wanna, before we take a break and go to the trauma delivery part, I, I, I want to briefly talk about what happens in those situations when folks do end up with a catastrophe, catastrophe having occurred. Uh, um, we had the great privilege of, of representing the young fellow a few years ago where we got a jury verdict in Springfield and we and we took what well, at the time was a cap that was put in place on what recovery could exist. And the, the Missouri Supreme Court declared that cap unconstitutional in a case just like what we're talking about, where there was a delay to act and the baby ended up with severe cerebral palsy. There are times that folks need to be asking for help from lawyers because the doctors haven't brought the help they needed for the baby. And we've seen these these parents come in over the years, Patrick, and it's it's a it's always an honor to, to take on their claim. But it's so sad to know that what they're facing, and oftentimes with a positive, great attitude of I'm going to do the best I can with this. I love this baby, even though the baby may have uh, devastating injuries that needs help with everything they do during the day. Um, we're still there to give guidance to them about how best we can help them and whether they do have a legitimate claim when there's been a delay. That's, that's true. Um, you know, one thing I'm always um, surprised about is when people come to me with their uh, baby who's been injured. And I'll ask them, I said, did any doctor sit down and explain to you what happened to your baby 
and why your baby is the way your baby is. And almost to a T, they've all looked at me and say, no. Now, that's not a legal question. That's a humanistic question. And it's sort of a telltale sign that something is wrong that wants to be hidden or covered up or the parents don't want to be told about. But um, you need to be an advocate for your child, both during the labor and delivery process, as we discussed, but also after, if you, if you come out with a baby who um, has been injured, uh, be an advocate for that baby and get the baby the help they need and the help you will need if it's a lifelong, permanent, devastating event. What, what, what makes the litigation process sometimes frustrating for us, I know it does for clients, is where the blame game starts to be put back on the parent in some way. And, and they'll do it in subtle ways. It, now what we're seeing, it seems like every time, is they say there's a genetic problem. Exactly. Regardless of whether there's any tests, regardless of even if the tests say there's no genetic problem, the new defense seems to be there must be some sort of genetic variance that's causing this baby's severe problem because it couldn't have been us delaying bringing the baby into the world. Yeah, that, that's true. A genetic problem, whether there is signs of a genetic problem through testing or whether there's no signs and they're just speculating. Or, well, the mother smoked 10 years ago, uh, that type of thing. They will look for subtle ways to suggest that the mother harmed their own child rather than uh, the healthcare provider, the doctor or nurse harming their child. So let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about trauma at delivery. So Patrick, on this topic of trauma at delivery, I, I've kind of thought about this in two separate ways. Trauma that results when a baby gets stuck, so to speak, um, which you and I know of as what's called brachial plexus injuries. And secondly, where there has been trauma occur because they use some sort of instrument during the time of delivery to deliver the baby, either forceps or vacuum are typically the, the two in instruments. I, I know that, uh, that you had a, a case that was a brachial plexus case that went to trial a few years ago in Arkansas. Um, and th these are a little di different type of animal than the cases we've been talking about earlier where there's been a delay to act. How so? Certainly. So a brachial plexus uh, case, first of all, let's talk about what the brachial plexus is. As the nerves that come out of your neck uh, go out into the arms, they form a web of nerves, kind of like a spider web, and that is called the brachial plexus. Those nerves go and provide um, nerve sensation, motor movement, all that for the arms. And when the baby is in the process of being uh, born, there are occasions when the baby's shoulder will be stuck on the pelvic outlet. That is called a shoulder dystocia. The head delivers and the baby's body does not follow. That is an emergency situation and that you need to have the baby delivered because the uterus continues to contract and it continues to press upon the cord, the umbilical cord, and that can be a situation where it's depriving the baby of oxygen. The steps that a doctor next take, takes next in order to deliver that baby are very important. There are specific maneuvers that have been tried and tested and are well-researched and they're out there in the literature for doctors to know about. And how the doctor approaches that delivery at that point is extremely important. What the doctor does not want to do, and unfortunately how these injuries occur, is when the doctor basically just takes the baby's head and pulls downward on it, trying to free that upper shoulder from the pelvic bone. That is absolutely not what you don't want to do. 
If you take your head and you turn it and try to touch your ear to your shoulder, on the opposite end, you're gonna feel a stretch. Those are the nerves stretching. And the baby's nerves are more tender than a normal adult's nerves. And if you stretch those too hard, you can get a range of injuries to the nerves. You can get something called a simple minor stretch, which is called an aroma, where it's basically temporary and you can have decreased use, decreased movement of the baby's arms for a couple of months. You can get a more serious stretch called a neuropraxia. It takes a little bit longer to heal. You can get a rupture where somewhere along that strand in the nerve, the nerve gets torn. Now that often results in a permanent injury. And in the most extreme is where you get something called an avulsion. And it is just as serious as that name sounds. It is where the baby's nerve is actually ripped out of the spinal cord attachment. It takes a lot of force to do that. And, it is, and when that happens, that is a telltale sign the doctor has used too much force in just trying to pull the baby's head down and free up that shoulder rather than resorting to these specific maneuvers to deliver this baby healthily and successfully. And when that happens, that baby's arm is not going to get used the way it could. It is also going to be smaller. They are going to be one-handed. Maybe that arm might be just a helper hand. It could just help a little bit. But that baby's going to be permanently disabled for the rest of their lives. So I want to back up a step and then swing back to what you just talked about. Because if I'm a parent and I'm thinking, you know, if my baby's stuck, I got to get him out of there. The doctor's got to get him out. And if something gets injured along the way, that's just life. There are things, however, that can be considered before you ever get to that point about whether you're likely going to be delivering a baby that is going to be at risk for getting stuck, right? That's exactly right. You look at things like the weight of the baby, uh, how much weight the mother has um, gained. You look at the... Um, you can actually look at things like size of the baby's head. All these things that come up on ultrasound, they're taking these measurements. And those are things you can look at to tell the mother in advance, hey, this might be a situation where we're going to have to resort to a C-section. Are we advised doing a C-section? Because when the baby's head has already been delivered and the baby's body is not forthcoming because the shoulder has been stuck, that is not the safe time to do a C-section delivery. Right. So checking the size of the pelvis, checking how big the baby's head's likely going to be in proportion to the pelvis, that if a doctor is exercising ordinary care and being reasonable in their approach, they may counsel a patient to go ahead and have a C-section electively rather than risk the possibility that they're going to end up with a baby stuck in the birth canal. That's exactly right. But sometimes, Patrick, I see these operative records come out of of one of these situations where a baby's had a, an avulsion injury where the nerve has been ripped from, from the cord. And it looks like the doctor has done everything completely by the book and how they've delivered that baby. If you just look at the operative report, um, how can that be? How can the doctor do everything by the book? And yet you end up with an avulsion injury. Well, by the book is a, a moving target. Understand that these, op, these uh, delivery notes are, are dictated and written after the fact, after the baby's been born, and after oftentimes they know that the um, baby has been injured. Um, 
And sometimes it could be the fact that the doctor doesn't know the maneuvers, the correct maneuvers, or the doctor just isn't aware that they're using too much force. But if each time you're pulling on the baby's head, the studies have shown each time a doctor tries to deliver the baby by pulling downward on the head, it doesn't deliver. Then they do it again, and they do it again, you are using more and more force. That's why the studies show that even with these maneuvers I discussed, if one maneuver doesn't work, you move on to the next maneuver. You don't attempt one maneuver uh, more than a couple times because the studies show that every time a doctor repeats that same maneuver, they're using more and more force. And it makes sense because if it didn't work the first time, if I do it a little harder, more and more force is gonna deliver the baby and that's how you get those injuries. So there could be a couple of reasons why everything's done quote unquote by the book and yet you have a, a, a baby that is injured. But when you're talking about these injuries such as avulsion, except in very rare circumstances that I have not seen yet, avulsion or rupture, it is because the doctor has used too much trauma, too much force, what they call traction by that downward movement of the head to deliver that baby. So as is true with the earlier type of problems that we talked about where there's been a delay in delivery, the reality, anytime somebody has a legal claim, you're going to have experts who are going to have to address what happened and why and whether it should have been prevented with basic ordinary care. So if you get honest experts on this issue that we're talking about, they're going to tell you, you do not have an avulsion injury absent an excessive use of force on the baby's head. If you get dishonest experts, and we've run into a few of those over the years, what are we hearing, how they try to explain this away? That's a, that's a good question, a question I anticipated. They have come up with these theories, just as you described in the theories that happened just during the, the earlier labor process, to try to explain how is it that you can get this uh, avulsion, a, an injury to the, or basically ripping of the nerve out of the spinal cord, how can that happen? So they come up with these theories. Well, again, it's the mother harming the baby because the forces of the uterus contracting are so so forceful that it can actually cause this injury. Or when the baby's shoulder hits that pelvic bone, and this is an actual an analogy that has been used, and I've heard it used uh, by a doctor once in a, in a deposition. The force of that baby hitting the mother's pelvic bone is akin to the force of a tractor trailer driving down the highway, and the trailer's too tall and it hits an overpass. And I had a doctor look at me at the beginning, straight face, and says that that's, that's how this injury happens, is it's just that tractor trailer analogy. And I kept asking about it. And then finally, and he ended up saying about two or three times, well, it's just a theory. And it hasn't been tested, hasn't been proven. You can't measure those forces. It's just a theory, he kept telling me. It's just a theory. A theory that's not proven. A theory that, in my mind, has been made up to try to explain an injury that otherwise is easily explained by too much traction, too much force by the doctor. So what we find ourselves doing sometimes, Patrick, when we're into these cases, is debunking bad science. And you have to be able to get experts that are going to shine the light of truth on what's happened and are, have the courage to stand up against this national organization that cares more about defending lawsuits than it does about patients that are injured by doctors who are practicing bad medicine. So it, it is an expert battle at times. But the thing that I like about what we do is we're bringing the claim on behalf of the person who had a wrong occur that had not to have occurred and we're bringing it with the right science. So we don't have to come up with junk science in order to bring the claim. 
That, that's exactly right. And that's, that's one thing that is rewarding uh, representing these families. You find quality experts who can explain it by the science and not explain it through these tractor trailer analogies. Um, this is a, a case you and I tried together uh, where this one expert who is notoriously always hired by the defense and she comes up with these analogies about uh, the force of the labor and she actually tried to make this model based upon a rabbit's nerve and the lamb something and a goat something else and it was during cross-examination one of those minutes I said so what she did is she kind of tried to develop a Franken baby to try to explain <laughs> how this happens. She didn't like that analogy, but uh, the jury liked it. But uh, that's exactly what they do. They, they come up with some um, just extreme theories, uh, but sometimes they work, unfortunately, and they're backed by this national organization. And when I say national organization, there's not a, 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 an organization that... Um, licenses doctors. It's not an organization that gives you an exam and you have to pass their exam. It's basically a voluntary organization. And one of these well-accredited experts I've used in the past uh, knew that this organization has actually sanctioned doctors just because they testify for the plaintiffs to try to prevent them from doing that. So the smartest thing I ever heard is this doctor said, I just withdrew from the organization. I told him I don't want to be a party organization because you can't sanction me if I'm not a party organization. The, the sad thing for any professional organization is that when they decide not to police their own, not to get to what's true and right, but instead to protect bad doctors. And I've told folks that, that we've consulted with about this for years now, 90% of the negligent care is being done by 10% of the doctors. And the reason why is because they won't police their own. So it takes folks to have courage to go through a process that will hold accountable those that have wronged their babies. Um, and that's, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and there's fewer and fewer of us that are in our line of work that are doing it because it costs so much money to get to have what sometimes may be a dozen experts altogether in the case. And it takes a lot of time and it's a fight all the way to the end. Although we do end up resolving many of these before trial. That, that's exactly right. It's the few that are willing to stand up and do what's right uh, for the majority are the ones that uh, are doing the work that's most rewarding, whether it be the doctors who are willing to testify about how these injuries really occur, um, the attorneys that are willing to take on these cases, but let's never minimize the parents that are willing to stand up and say, darn it, this is not right what happened to my baby, and I want answers, and I want justice, not just for me, but for my baby for the rest of their life. So th this other category, let's talk about briefly, and then we'll talk about some good questions for parents to be thinking about and asking, uh, is, is trauma that's caused to the baby's head during the delivery process by the use of an instrument. Uh, we, we had the case just last October where the use of forceps was done without the parent's permission or consent, but the doctor chose to hurry up the delivery by doing a, a forceps delivery and ended up causing bleeding both at, at the baby's head level and into the brain. And you and I are going to trial in a, in a month or two in another case where a vacuum was used. The pressure was put up at a greater volume to suck that baby out, even after the first two times failed, and it ends up causing a, a baby's serious brain injuries using that instrument even when their own rules said, do not ever use it under these circumstances. The doctor still used it under those circumstances. So, so these also are, are sometimes 
direct injuries to the baby's head and into the baby's brain. And yet, even when it's that clear, even when you see bruising on the baby's face and scalp, blood on the, between the, the skull and the, and the scalp. Misshaping of the head. Misshapen head and ultrasounds of the head that show bleeding into the brain. You get them saying, well, this all happened before the baby and the mom ever got to the hospital. Are those rules that say don't use the vacuum uh, for these types of babies, that, for example, babies that are premature, uh, that was just kind of an advisory. We really didn't know the reason for that. We just kind of advised it without any science to back it up, which doesn't sound like that's something the medical community uh, wants to be doing, making recommendations based upon the lack of any science, but yet that is the defense that they try to use. And so one of the fun things, a fun in a dark way in the forceps case we had last year, the way the defense tried to work on that case was to say, well, the literature only says that there's an association of bleeding in the brain with the use of forceps. It doesn't say that the use of forceps causes the bleeding in the brain. So that what the jury is set, sitting there having to deal with is, is there a difference between causing the injury or it being associated with the injury. But it's, again, the word spin that word meisters on the defense side try to utilize. That, that, that's exactly right. The play on words. Yes. So, so these cases with head trauma um, occurring at birth, again, it's a situation where parents have the right to choose before any instrument is put on their baby's head and ought to be advised about it and ought to be assertive with the doctor saying, doctor, do not put that on my baby's head if it can possibly cause injury to my baby's brain. And can't we just wait and see if, if I'm going to be able to move this baby out of my body without the use of an instrument? Both good questions to ask a doctor rather than just allowing the doctor to choose for you what he's going to do. Exactly. Three, ba three basic questions you can ask. Why do we need to do this? Or why are you thinking we need to do this? Number two, what can happen? What are the risks if we do this? And then lastly, <clears throat> what if we don't do this? What can happen if we don't do this? Do we just need to wait a little longer or are there other means? So why do we need to do it? What can happen if we do? What can happen if we don't? Right. And, and sometimes, as is the case with the one we had last October, the choice that was made by the doctor and his justification for it, well, it would help mom. It would help mom with delivery even though it would risk baby, okay? And it, it, how many moms are going to say, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and risk my baby's brain just so I can be helped a few minutes earlier? Again, I think every mother is going to say, look, I will endure the pain. I will endure the inconvenience, uh, but give me a healthy baby. So, so these questions that the parents ask, it, it, you know, the thing is, People in this part of the country, especially younger, newer moms and dads, they think, well, I just got to trust my doctor to take care of me. I'm, they're going to have my best interests in mind. I don't want to ask questions because maybe it'll be a stupid question or I, I don't want to make my doctor think I'm second guessing. Um, it's, it's a good thing. It's a right that a patient has, even before an emergency occurs to ask these questions, these why, or what will we do if this certain thing occurs, or what is the risk if we do this other thing, right? That's exactly right. Go to any hospital and ask them for the patient bill of rights, and the bill of rights is gonna say that you have the power to be involved in the decision-making, which what happens to you in the treatment course that you're going to have. Another thing, um, 
in this modern era, we all have cell phones and you can take pictures and you can take video. If you start to get concerned uh, during the process, pull out your phone and you can take a video. And if they say, well, what are you doing that for? Say, I want to videotape the delivery of my baby. Okay, but don't use that as a um, substitute for asking good questions. You can do that in conjunction with the questions. You can even get the questions you're asking and the concern you're raising on the video. If uh, something that happens after the baby's born and you question the appearance of the baby's head or the scalp or something like that, take pictures. You can take pictures and video. That's one of the nice things about having cell phones around. Yeah, and, and e even sometimes it's helpful to have that so that you can ask your doctor questions when the doctor arrives. So let's say you're looking at the fetal heart monitor and you've done some research ahead of time and you see what a, what this means when these V's start to occur on on the baby's heart rate and they're occurring more frequently and they're getting deeper. You take a couple of snapshots of that and then you say um, to the doctor when she arrives, doctor, look what this is here. What's this mean? Sh should we do something different? Or you take it out to the nurse and say, look what I just saw here on the fetal heart monitor can't we call the doctor and ask if, it, if we need to be doing something different? True. Some nurses will be reluctant, especially if it's the middle of the night, to call the doctor and wake uh, he or her up. So what, uh, him or her up. So what, uh, what you can do is, is understand you need to be an advocate again for yourself and for your baby at a time when the baby can't advocate for him or herself. And if the nurse is not giving you the answers or responding the way you want, ask to see the nurse's supervisor and talk to the nurse's supervisor. And there is a chain of command, what they call it, that the, it goes from the nurse all the way on up eventually to the doctor or someone even above the doctor to get the answers you want. But don't ever be afraid to speak up, not when your baby's life and your baby's health is on the line, as well as the life and health of the mother at times. It's being an advocate for your baby. Exactly. And, and that, that really even starts earlier in the process. Uh, it, it starts if, you, if a mom stops filling the baby kick as many times or move as much, is not being afraid to call and say, I'm not feeling my baby move as much as I, as I had been before. Or, you know, I, I've been keeping track of the kicks and the baby's not been kicking. Or when I eat this certain thing, the baby always kicks, but now it's not. Now, if you've got an understanding, caring, listening healthcare provider that's responding to that, they, they will sort out those situations that probably aren't to be worried about versus those that ought to say, you ought to come in here and let's put you on the fetal heart monitor and just make sure your baby's okay. Or let's do an ultrasound real quick. It's safe. It's simple. It doesn't cost very much money. Let's just make sure the baby's okay. That's the response that ought to occur anytime that there is warning signs begin to manifest even before the labor happens, but certainly once the labor occurs. That's right. Anytime you feel, you know, it, again, it gets back to that mother's intuition. That's an amazing thing. Anytime a mother, a parent feels something's not right with my baby, find out uh, and have it checked out. At the same time, anytime you feel something's not right with the response I'm getting from the healthcare provider, you're probably right and you need to uh, either go up that chain of command or contact someone else or be even more persistent because it is your health, your baby's health, and it's their job to keep you out of harm's way and your baby out of harm's way. So make sure they're doing their job. Yeah, one last thing on this topic, Patrick, and, and it's pe people have not to have to be worried about legal claims whenever they're getting ready to have a baby. And, you know, moms that are uh, in labor and those labor pains are getting more intense, they're not thinking about how am I going to protect a legal claim? You never even want to think about a legal claim. 
But we do have means now to create a paper trail rather than relying on healthcare providers to create an accurate paper trail. It can be through text messages. It can be through a log or journal that you're keeping. And by the way, when everything turns out great, that's a kind of a fun thing to look back on what was happening as it was happening. When things don't work out great, Sometimes you've got the accurate record of what was really happening because a healthcare provider has chosen not to document the things that were occurring. That's right. Uh, in fact, oftentimes the patient's record in that respect will be more accurate because we have electronic medical records where things, just boxes are checked and there's really not a full description of what's going on oftentimes. But you do have all those means. You can take notes, you can dictate into your cell phone, you can take pictures or video with your cell phone. All of those things that you, you want to document if you're ever concerned. And again, hopefully nothing happens with that. Hopefully you don't need a legal claim, but you have a great uh, book you can put together for your baby called The Day I Was Born. So, uh, and, and finally here, when there is a situation that occurs where you've got a baby that's seriously injured or you've lost your baby when your dreams were just getting ready to come into reality. You've lost your baby instead. Uh, we, we do a regional-based practice, and we're unafraid of taking on any claim against a healthcare provider that has merit to it because they, the healthcare provider made choices that wronged their patient. So uh, Johnson Voorhees and Martucci, birth injuries and, and wrongful death of babies. It seems like we're doing a lot more of that than we ought than we ought to have to nowadays, but it's certainly our privilege and honor to take those claims on if folks need somebody they can trust. That's exactly right. And it's important to come in early and talk to a lawyer about it and understand uh, at our firm, you're going to need to get, we're going to need to get the mother's records, the baby's records, and probably send it out to an expert. That all costs money. However, the way we work is on a contingent basis. And if we're ordering those records and we consult an expert, and we're into it, you know, a couple thousand dollars even. If it comes back and says, you know, this was one of those unfortunate circumstances that happened, but no one was negligent, then it's not something that costs the, the client any money. That is a business expense that uh, we take on and we write off. But so don't ever hesitate for fear, boy, I can't afford a lawyer because we do it on a contingent basis where there's no cost to the, the client unless there's a recovery. But uh, certainly, again, be an advocate for your baby, whether during the process or after the process, because what you can get is the lifelong help, support, medical treatment that the baby's going to need to take care of them with their disability. Thank you. That's it.